Before we get started, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Adam Elkhadim, whom I never got the chance to know as well as I would have liked. Our brief chats over our love for Superman and distaste for fascists will stick with me forever. When he learned that I had lost my job, Adam immediately got his publisher to send me his book of cartoons, Octave the Artist, free of charge. I only wish it had gotten to me in time for me to tell Adam how much I liked it. Adam, the last message you sent me was praise for Jack Kirby's keen eye for the unique and the memorable. You were both of those things. Continuing threat of terrorism. The threat of mass murder on our own soil will be met with a unified, effective response. I, sitting at my desk, uh, certainly had the authorities to, to wiretap anyone. From you or your accountant to a federal judge to even the president, if I had a personal email. When it comes to telephone calls, every member of Congress has been briefed on this program. Europe spends five times more on its military and intelligence affairs than China. Just over half that of the United States. Dozens of agencies charged with Homeland Security will now be located within one cabinet department with the mandate and legal authority Protect our people. Protect our people. Protect our people. Poet, be God's spy if God exists. Painter, paint his eye if he has one. Be a dark barker before the tents of existence. See the rose through world-colored glasses. Be an eye among the blind. I've lived a weird life, and definitely a privileged one. I grew up in a suburb of Birmingham in Alabama that would be considered upper-middle class, to use the non-Marxist term for it. And, you know, every now and then, you might actually hear a bit of an accent peek through, particularly the way I sometimes pronounce my O sounds, but that's only if you really know what you're listening for. I say I've lived a weird life because weird things have happened around me, most of them outside of my control, and many of which didn't really affect me at all, but still make for decent stories. On August 23rd, 2006, a show premiered on MTV called Two-A-Days. It was a sleazy reality TV program about the Hoover High School football team in Hoover, Alabama. The sleaziest and most controversial character in the series was the coach. Rush Probst, a man who on at least one occasion screamed at his players to beat the piss out of the other team, turned out to be a huge piece of shit. Shocker, right? It was revealed that the guy was secretly married to two women and even had children with both of them. He also had a history of getting players' grades changed so they could continue to play for him, among a host of other unsavory practices to utilize ineligible players that I don't understand, because I don't know anything about football. Not the behind the scenes, anyway. 
The only reason I knew about this at all is that my high school, which I was attending at the time this was all happening, had a major rivalry with Hoover High School from the show, particularly when it came to our football teams. It was so major, in fact, that we were the villains of season two. That's right. I, canonically in MTV lore, am a bad guy. I was never on TV for this, thank God, but it was a pretty constantly discussed phenomenon while I was there. After all of the controversy at Hoover, Coach Probst was basically forced to resign. But that didn't stop him from being a generally bad dude. And despite all his scandals, he still got a coaching job just somewhere else. Like most reality TV, Two-A-Days was filmed and then cut together in ways that the subjects never intended. The first season has certainly been criticized by at least one player-slash-cast member for constructing a narrative that ascribed ill intent to him over a love triangle that never actually happened. Again, these were high schoolers. I did say it was sleazy. Isn't it just a bit sinister how reality TV producers have not only the motivation, but the means and the power to collect all this footage, all this information, and construct a narrative with it that suits their purposes, that helps their bottom lines. What if it didn't stop there? What if other entities had similar means and missions, but on a grander scale? What if someone had the power to take every aspect of your life, separate them out, and sell them to those who would use them to reconstruct you into the perfect little consumer, or to advertise you as a threat, a problem to be dealt with. I'm sorry to say, someone does have that power, and they're probably using it on you right now. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire, or the rise of the zombies, or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh... This ain't my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. So who are the Chitauri? You might know them from the Marvel Cinematic Universe as the bad guys from the first Avengers movie. They're the ones that mind control Hawkeye and that sloppy professor guy from the Thor movies. Also, they try to invade Manhattan through a wormhole, but they end up getting nuked instead. It's fine. Their appearance here in The Ultimates is their debut, so I'm not gonna recap it here because, well, that's what this whole second half of the season is about. They're basically the revamped version of an alien race in the Marvel books called the Skrulls. In 1961, the Skrulls made their first appearance as the villains of Fantastic Four number two. The book opens with the various members of the titular team committing apparently heinous or illegal acts of some sort. The rocky monstrosity, The Thing, destroys an offshore oil platform, which is actually cool, of course. The Invisible Woman steals a diamond from a jewelry store because shiny pretty things are all women care about. 
the human torch melts a newly unveiled statue of what looks to be Civil War soldiers in the Midwest. And this is also good, because Union soldiers in the West were actually sent there to massacre Native Americans instead of, ostensibly, to end the institution of human slavery that this country was founded on and actually basically continues to profit from today. And finally, Mr. Fantastic uses his stretchy arm to reach into a power plant and flip the apparently one switch it takes to power off all of New York City. It's very silly. The four reconvene and explain to each other how they mimicked the powers of the Fantastic Four before changing shape into the green and black pointy-eared aliens we will come to recognize as Skrulls. They express their intent to wait and watch as the now-framed superheroes become public enemies and thus unable to defend the city against an attack from the Skrull mothership. And sure enough, the final panel of this page is just a bunch of angry headlines crucifying the Fantastic Four. The actual Fantastic Four retreat to a cabin in the woods somewhere to lay low for a while. You know, get the heat off, Amscray. They take the time to remind the reader how they got their powers in a freak space accident, and it's actually not too clunky and terrible. And then the army shows up to bring them in. The army arrests them and throws them into specifically crafted prison cells that they all immediately escape from. They steal a helicopter from the military and get away to yet another of their secret hideouts, of which they have many, apparently. The group squabbles a bit, but then they concoct a plan to lure out the impersonators by having the Human Torch interrupt a new rocket being launched somewhere. He does so, and two of the scrolls show up and believe him to be an imposter as well. They bring him back to their base because they're very stupid. Before they can stop him, he signals the rest of the Fantastic Four with a flare gun and gets into a brawl with his captors while his team make their way to him. The Fantastic Four fight the Skrulls into submission and get them to reveal the existence of the mothership and the invasion fleet. So naturally, the Fantastic Four decide to masquerade as Skrulls and sneak aboard. They just fire up the Skrulls' rocket and fly it straight to the mothership. They pretend to be the Skrulls in disguise as the Fantastic Four and convince the Skrull leadership that the Earth is too well protected and that the fleet should just turn around and go home. The Fantastic Four head back in the rocket to New York and are immediately arrested. They convince the police to take them to the Skrulls still trapped in their apartment to prove their innocence. The Skrulls give them a hard time, but they're eventually defeated again. Rather than face execution, the Skrulls agree to be hypnotized to forget their true identities and shapeshift into cows, a state in which they're to remain forever. I actually don't hate this comic. It's a lot of fun and the art is gorgeous. It's also not toxically anti-communist like all the others, and that's a low bar, but it's a major plus. So why change it for the Ultimate Universe? Why make the perfectly suitable Skrulls the Chitauri? Miller claims in an interview that the name Skrulls was actually legally tied up with the Fantastic Four, and he implies that the name was changed to avoid too much legal headache navigating movie rights and such. And that's probably true. But why Chitauri? Because Mark Miller is a weirdo. He got the name Chitauri, or Chitauri, from a book called The Reptilian Agenda by notorious conspiracy theorist David Icke a man who has never once in his life beaten the allegations that he's a gigantic anti-Semite. And these aren't the kind of weaponized accusations of anti-Semitism, like when someone just wants the Israeli government to stop murdering Palestinian children daily. 
We're talking Jews are secretly lizard aliens and they're controlling the world anti-Semitism. You didn't have to tell all them lies. I can't say for sure that Miller subscribes to this theory. He probably doesn't. And merely his use of the name Chitauri isn't some tacit endorsement of Ike's work. But in that same interview I mentioned earlier, which can be found at the back of the collected edition of The Ultimates, Miller says the following, quote, They're known by a few names in every culture of the world, which is slightly creepy. Chitauri is what the Africans call them. Google this if you don't believe me, end quote. So I did. That's how I found out that this information pretty much only comes from Ike and his co-conspirator, Dr. Credo Mutwa. So Miller at least read a little bit of Ike and wasn't immediately disgusted. Very recently, Miller tweeted out an endorsement for U.S. presidential candidate Robert Kennedy Jr., an anti-vaccine conspiracy whack job who purports to be anti-establishment, even though he's currently the most prominent member of what is arguably the closest thing the United States has to a royal family, the Kennedys. I think it's very funny, too, to point out that Mark Miller has acknowledged that he all too often incorporates Adolf Hitler in his writing, and his now-preferred presidential prospect has a grandfather who was fired from his job as U.S. ambassador for being too pro-Hitler. Something I just learned. Oh, hey, speaking of Nazis, let's get started on this issue. This one's a bit of a change of pace. Despite the stupid, dumb, boring cliffhanger we left on last time, we're not shown the immediate aftermath. Instead, we're diverted by a flashback. It's Poland in 1944, and Captain America, in his World War II costume, is holding onto the side of a speeding train for dear life as Nazi soldiers creep up on him. On top of the train stands a character we're going to come to know all too intimately. Nazi commander and Chitauri in disguise, Herr Kleiser. And just to give you a fun little pronunciation guide here, in German, if a word is spelled with an E-I, then it's pronounced I. If it's got an I-E, then it's pronounced E. As my German teacher put it, first one does the walking, second one does the talking. Now, go forth and pronounce those two German phonemes with the utmost of confidence. I believe in you. If you'll recall from the first two episodes, Captain America, Steve Rogers, was frozen in the Atlantic sometime in 1944, just after a mission in Iceland, which ended with Allied soldiers capturing an alien superweapon facility. So, obviously, this is before that. Herr Kleiser is reveling in the moment and making a real meal out of this opportunity to demoralize Captain America. He assures Captain America that Cap has failed to prevent them from delivering parts for the superweapon from issue one. He doesn't phrase it that way, of course. That would be weird. He crows about Captain America failing to hijack the train. This pronouncement is met with a smirk and Captain America's rebuttal that he, in fact, was not there to hijack the train, but was there to blow it up. We then get several panels of all the bombs that had been placed along the train, and Captain America leaps off the barreling death trap as it crosses a river. As he does so, his parting one-liner is this, quote, tell Hitler thanks for making such a big deal about the trains running on time, end quote. I'm sure any of you who know anything about World War II are groaning and rolling your eyes right now. The Nazis and the Italian fascists did not make the trains run on time. The next scene is 12 months later, 
And believe me, I desperately rifled through all my issues of the Ultimates to determine if this timeline made sense. I regret to say it does. Anyway, we're in Marrakesh at a joint US-British intelligence briefing. And I'd like to quote Mark Miller here, quote, such is our madness here that all the figures named here in the 1944 flashback are real people. I researched the hell out of this and made sure that the guys briefing Cap in Africa at the time are exactly the guys who would have been there, end quote. And aha, Mark, I caught you. You said 1944 flashback, but this clearly takes place in 1945. It's a different flashback, idiot. Got it. Anyway, Brian Hitch said in the same interview that he was too lazy to draw most of the people that were there how they actually would have looked. Except for, like, Eisenhower. The people there are, as previously stated, U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, and Economic Advisor to President Roosevelt, Lachlan Curry. You all might know about General Eisenhower. He went on to become president after Truman. You might not know Field Marshal Montgomery. He was a lunatic who was obsessed with sparing as many British soldiers' lives in the war as he could, not because he cared about them, but because he wanted to spare Great Britain's post-war labor force and military influence from being decimated by all the fighting. To quote Stephen Hart's book Montgomery and Colossal Cracks, the 21st Army Group in Northwest Europe, 1944 to 1945, quote, Montgomery fully appreciated the British politico-imperial dimensions of the military campaign he was to conduct. Britain had gone to war, in addition to resisting Nazi aggression, to protect her influence on the Europe that would emerge after the war. Montgomery, like Britain's senior commanders and politicians, realized that being among the victors was insufficient to secure British war aims. If Britain emerged as one of the victorious allies, but with her army destroyed, Britain's ability to influence the shape of post-war Europe would be diminished." End quote. Boo fucking who, right? Good news though, that last guy here is cool. Lachlan Curry was a Soviet spy. His cover was blown in the same Venona project that uncovered the Rosenbergs. Someone had passed America's atomic bomb secrets to Russia. This was an undisputed fact that the whole world knew. The military and intelligence figures gather round to listen to a briefing by Field Marshal Montgomery. He tells them all that Oslo and Marrakesh have already been cleared out of Chitauri activity. Iceland, however, is now their biggest concern. And if we remember all the alien tech at the nuclear superfortress in the first issue, we understand why. Montgomery claims that George Dayton over at OSS has received intel about the accelerated nuclear program there. We've gone over this before, but the OSS, or Office of Strategic Services, was the very first actually effective attempt on the part of the United States to coordinate all its intelligence gathering agencies and efforts. Two years after this flashback in the Ultimates, it would become the CIA. And this brings us to the first point I'd like to use this issue to make. When I talk about intelligence or intelligence agencies, what do I mean? Intelligence is any knowledge gathered in the course of government business, above board or otherwise, and even useful or otherwise. This could take the form of data to be analyzed, as in population demographics, agricultural output, energy production and consumption, military facts and figures, etc. It could mean intercepted communications or broadcasts. It could mean all sorts of things. 
Anything about anything that can be gathered, cataloged, and potentially utilized later is intelligence. Here's a list of the current intelligence gathering disciplines. Humit, short for human intelligence. This is data gathered from a person in the location in question. Someone like a diplomat, a military attache, the reportings of an NGO, prisoners of war, standard military patrols, the list goes on. Geoint, short for geospatial intelligence. This is satellite or aerial photography, or mapping slash terrain data. Massint, measurement and signature intelligence. This one's a bit more complicated. It's intelligence gathered in the form of an array of distinctive characteristics split into six main and more explanatory categories. Electro-optical, nuclear, radar, geophysical, materials, radio frequency. Basically, this means anything you can measure from your target's technological or energetic outputs. Say, is that missile that's hurtling toward us also radioactive? Or what's the weather like in Guam? Stuff like that. OSINT, Open Source Intelligence. This is intelligence gathered by trawling publicly accessible spaces like the internet, or published scientific papers, or interviews at trade shows or whatever. This is a big one because they're reading and storing all the shit you post right now. It's scary, but it's true. SIGINT, Signals Intelligence. This is intelligence gathered through the interception of communications, broadcasts, and other electronic emanations and telemetry. And remember this one. The next is TECHINT, Technical Intelligence. This one is specifically about gathering data on weapons and equipment used by foreign militaries. Although, for some reason, a subset is medical intelligence. I mean, you can guess what that one is. Finally, we have Finant. This last one is financial intelligence. Rest assured, the government knows how much you have in your bank account, and they have every Venmo transaction you've ever made filed away somewhere. Intelligence gathering in wartime is nothing new, of course. It's not unique to the United States either. The U.S. does have a rather dour history of official intelligence gathering during peacetime as well, though. A brief historical overview from the government's own sources, so, you know, grain of salt, tells us that the first office tasked with gathering intel outside of a war was the Office of Naval Intelligence. Here's a quote from the document. Quote, in March 1882, the first permanent intelligence organization, the Office of Naval Intelligence, was created within the Department of the Navy to collect intelligence on foreign navies in peacetime and in war. Three years later, a similar organization, the Military Intelligence Division, was created within the Army to collect foreign and domestic military data for the War Department and the Army. The administration of Theodore Roosevelt saw perhaps the most active use of intelligence for foreign policy purposes by any president until that time. Historians note that Roosevelt used intelligence operatives to incite a revolution in Panama to justify annexing the Panama Canal. End quote. Now, where have we heard a similar story? Intelligence gathering doesn't even have to be about other countries. From the same government document from earlier, quote, For the most part, the early part of the 20th century was marked not by an expanded use of intelligence for foreign policy purposes, but by an expansion of domestic intelligence capabilities. 
The Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, the forerunner to the FBI, was established in 1908 out of concern that Secret Service agents were spying on members of Congress, end quote. Eleven years later, the Bureau of Investigation was the only intelligence agency not to have its funding cut by the Hoover administration. In 1935, the Bureau of Investigation was renamed the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It also had a Hoover for a head, albeit one with no relation to Herbert. J. Edgar Hoover, power-mad bulldog of a man, was by then firmly entrenched as the locus of domestic intelligence gathering. But for all his power, there still wasn't a centralized effort to coordinate intelligence-collecting activities. This would change. Enter Wild Bill Donovan. William Donovan was a personal friend of Franklin Roosevelt and was tasked unofficially with gathering intelligence in Europe in 1940 and 1941. Upon his return to the U.S., Donovan petitioned Roosevelt to create an office that would oversee and coordinate all intelligence efforts. Roosevelt created one and appointed Donovan as its head, but he was reluctant to give it necessary authority to carry out the kind of work Donovan had in mind. Six months after the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the president finally acquiesced to Donovan's demands and created the entity being referenced in this scene in The Ultimates, the OSS. The OSS would, as stated previously, become the CIA. The CIA is part of what's collectively known as the Big Five U.S. intelligence agencies, along with the National Reconnaissance Office, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and the National Security Agency. And remember that last one. The briefing continues, briefly, and Captain America is diverted from his current mission to the one that takes him to Iceland. He voices his suspicions that that lunatic alien on the train a year ago is involved with all of this, and a very deliberately drawn Ike turns to him and confirms that. Does this count as a celebrity sighting? Maybe, but then we'd have to count Ralph Nader and George Bush from earlier, and I just can't bring myself to do that. So, with the Elton John and the John Wayne one that I missed last issue, we're still on Ultimate Celebrity Sighting number 23. In what is another of the very rare, decent moments in this wasteland of a comic, a server interrupts Captain America's conversation to ask, Ice, Captain? Captain America turns and replies, What? The server clarifies that he was asking the super soldier if he wanted ice in the drink the server is bringing him. No thanks, no ice. Cut to the present day. And we're aboard S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier Alpha on its way to Micronesia, following up on intelligence claiming that the Chitauri are staging the beginning of their full-scale invasion there. This issue takes a lot of room to breathe, honestly. Several of its pages are full-page tableaus and set pieces without any dialogue. The establishing shot of the helicarrier is one of them. Inside, Nick Fury, head of S.H.I.E.L.D., is opining about how impressed he is by Tony Stark. He asks Captain America, quote, You ever seen a man conduct a multilingual business deal, satisfy a girlfriend over the phone, and memorize a 600-page military briefing all at the same time? End quote. I hate this book so much. 
I hate Tony Stark. I hate the Tony Stark worship. I hate that the Tony Stark worship focuses so much on his sexual prowess. I hate that it's compared to military briefings and capitalist exploitation. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. This is a bad character in a book full of bad characters. Anyway, Cap, staring out the window, clearly lost in thought, replies to this exaltation of a monster with another distracted, what? And I just think that's a nice little piece of parallel construction. Again, credit where it's due. Despite the abhorrent, moronic content of this issue, it's actually a decently prepared piece of comic literature. All the parts fit together, and it takes its time arranging them so. Fury asks Cap if he's okay. Cap assures Fury he's fine, he was just having a bit of deja vu about the events of issue one. And again, he doesn't say it like that. That would be weird. He reminds Fury that 1945 doesn't seem that long ago to him. Fury tells him not to worry because this time he's coming home. There's also something here that sort of relates back to season one of the podcast. In this exchange, Nick Fury offers Captain America a Tic Tac, and it's just a moment of humanity between the two of them that doesn't foreshadow anything. They're not Chekhov's Tic Tacs. Captain America doesn't use the Tic Tac in his pocket to escape from a jail cell or anything later. But in the last episode of season one, Captain Marvel, or Shazam if you want, mentions that he needs a glass of milk and some Twinkies. And as was common in comics back then, Twinkies was put in quotation marks. In The Ultimates, some 15 years later, Tic Tacs is not. And I don't know why or when this changed, but it's just interesting to think about brand names becoming so much more of our general diction as corporations consolidate power and we're forced to use branded items to meet more and more of our needs. After this exchange, Fury and Cap share a moment of fresh-breathed silence. The perspective in the following panels pulls out farther and farther, and we're taken on a journey from the deck on which they're standing, to the tower on their helicarrier, to the entire helicarrier, and finally to a full-page shot of the enormous might of almost the whole of S.H.I.E.L.D. Multiple helicarriers shuttling numerous fighter jets and countless armed soldiers. You know, for all the Tony worship, his Iron Man suit sure doesn't seem to work all that good. As we saw in episode 5, he ran out of batteries like two seconds into the Hulk fight. One hit from the Hulk basically took out his visuals. And as we'll see in episode 12, even after that, it still doesn't take a lot to drain both his energy cells and his resolve. He's just not a very good superhero. The only practice he seems to have had with the suit prior to all this, is just his daily rounds around New York waving at women. But if S.H.I.E.L.D. were really smart, they'd probably appreciate Tony for something more useful than his single robot suit with getaway boots and bullet fingers. Tony, being all brain and all money, is perfectly suited for data collection and analysis. Is it possible that it is transmitting a code, not just a beep signal for uh, radio uh, listening? Yes, it's quite possible that it's transmitting a code, uh, but we don't uh, realize what the code is, of course. But we don't realize 
When you think about it, what are smart devices? Smart like Tony Stark? <laughs> you simple rube. It's not like that at all. Almost all of us have at least one smart device in our home. Our phones. But there are also smart watches, smart TVs, smart toothbrushes, smart anything you can think of. We all know this. What we don't think of, in the case of all of these things, is that smart means they collect and transmit data. Data about you, about your habits, your preferences, your travels, your shopping, your friends, your friends' friends. Every little piece of your world is atomized and digitized to be sent to a server owned by whoever manufactured your things or possibly a third party. Although there were numerous products that could fit this smart bill prior, the first ever phone marketed as smart was the Ericsson R380, which was released in 2000, two years before the Ultimates. The competition was immediate and fierce. Palm and Handspring each released personal digital assistants in the next two years. Although they weren't quite iPhones, smart devices were here to stay. Or, put more appropriately, the corporations that make decisions about the things we're going to buy had decided they were here to stay. To quote Jathan Sadowski's book, Too Smart, How Digital Capitalism is Extracting Data, Controlling Our Lives, and Taking Over the World, quote, Two major imperatives drive the design, development, and use of smart tech. Collection and control. The imperative of collection is about extracting all data from all sources by any means possible. It compels businesses and governments to collect as much data as they can, wherever they can. The imperative of control is about creating systems that monitor, manage, and manipulate the world and people. It's represented by the tireless surveillance systems that help corporations and police govern people, regulate access, and modify behaviors, end quote. For corporations, and indeed for the government that works on behalf of these corporations, this is all about profit. It's always all about profit. But it's also about protecting the system that relies on profit by monitoring and discouraging any dissent. Even in 2002, Stark International could have been marketing smart everything to the world, collecting all that data and handing it directly to S.H.I.E.L.D. It's what happens in real life every day. PRISM is the code name for the National Security Agency's program of collecting and analyzing internet communications from various companies you all probably use. The three companies it drew the most data from were Yahoo, Microsoft, and Google. It also goes by the designation US-984XN. It's SIGAD, or Signal Intelligence Activity Designator. Remember SIGINT, Signals Intelligence? That's this. It's not OSINT, Open Source Intelligence, because this isn't just public Facebook posts or tweets or free-to-see information like that. This falls under SIGINT because it's private signal interception. Your phone calls, your PMs, your DMs, probably your BMs these days. Please don't buy a smart toilet. 
PRISM was enacted under the Bush administration in 2007 and wasn't disclosed to the public until NSA contractor at the time, Edward Snowden, blew the whistle on it in 2013. And I guarantee you he knows more than he's ever let on. On June 6, 2013, the Washington Post revealed that the U.S. government was collecting the following. Email, video and voice chat, videos, photos, stored data, VoIP, that's voice over IP, file transfers, video conferencing, notifications of target activity, like logging in, online social networking details, and scariest of all, the mysteriously phrased special requests. The NSA can even monitor your stuff live. They have the ability to get notified each time you log on to whatever. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface. There's so much more that happens between Washington, D.C., Manhattan, and California's Silicon Valley than could ever be crammed into one podcast, let alone one podcast episode. This stuff hasn't stopped. Even Wikipedia, a website not known for having an anti-corporate or anti-U.S. stance, has an article titled Global Surveillance Disclosures 2013 to Present. Now imagine that Mark Zuckerberg has a flying suit of armor with heat sensors, butt guns, and access to how many times a day every single person in the U.S. masturbates, and access to how many times a day every single person in the U.S. does literally anything at all. That's the Tony Stark that S.H.I.E.L.D. should be utilizing in their push for global security. I'm actually glad they opted for the cowardly drunken womanizer because the alternative is too scary to think about. Speaking of almost scary, we're back with Janet Pym, the Wasp, at the sick bay in the Triskelion, Shield's mobile headquarters. It's not currently en route to Micronesia. Janet is back on her feet after being brutally assaulted by her husband Hank, aka Giant Man. She's left her room to find a nearly empty sick bay. The front desk isn't attended. The lobby is totally deserted. She muses to herself, quote, Great, more staff than three county hospitals, and you still have to fetch your own glass of water, end quote. I think now is as good a time as any to ask all of you out there to think about what it means to have an understaffed hospital. Just two days ago, as of the time of this writing, 2,000 nurses went on strike to demand that one of the largest healthcare systems in the country, Ascension, address its staffing crisis. Nurses are worked to the fucking bone. They're tired. They don't always have the supplies they need. Let me put it to you this way. Nurses often skip meals because there's no one else to prevent a patient from dying. How is this okay? How is this in any way acceptable? In 2021, seven different healthcare companies reported profits of over a billion dollars, some as high as eight billion. Also, I call them healthcare companies and not providers because they are in no way providing anything. If a company has life-saving medicines and the technical infrastructure to heal the sick, but they require outrageous, unaffordable fees before they let us have it, that is in no way providing anything. It's quite literally the opposite. It's prohibiting and excluding. Nobody would ever pay that much for it. You can be sure of that. You want to bet? Speaking of profit, 
it would behoove Stark International to get into the medical data game as soon as possible. And my god, I started down the rabbit hole of patients' medical data being sold, and there's just so much to know. I read about it for hours and still know only the merest basics. But I can tell you this. The notes on you, your conditions, your treatments, etc., that your doctor takes go into a database that almost invariably gets shared with companies called data brokers. A quote from Adam Tanner's book, Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records, quote, Middlemen companies connecting pharmacies, doctors, hospitals, and insurance providers receive cash for sharing details about your health conditions. Such digitized details may only be worth a few pennies per transaction, but when repeated billions of times, they become not only big data, but big business. For-profit healthcare data mining companies buy information from all of these sources to assemble a detailed history about you and hundreds of millions of others, end quote. We're going to see in a minute how all of this gets tied up with an enraging, hateful bow. Janet finally finds some folks working at the sickbay after wandering down multiple empty hallways. A nurse stands up from the computer she was working at and chastises her for being out of bed. Jan explains that something must be wrong with her buzzer because she's been trying to call for assistance for 20 minutes with no answer. As the nurse takes her by the arm, Jan continues that she woke up dehydrated and asks for something flavored. The nurse, clearly not listening to her, dismissively says, quote, anything you want, Mrs. Pym, you just go back to bed and we'll bring it right along. What's odd, and again, only sort of scary about this scene, is that everyone else, the few healthcare workers apparently on duty, is wearing a huge scowl and looking daggers at Jan. On the next page, we're clued into the fact that something weird is going on because the top panel shows that one of the workers is actually just holding a fucking gun behind her back and is very definitely just planning to shoot this superhero. Jan notices something is up when she turns around to find that all the others have gone except for the woman holding her arm and her would-be executioner. She breathes out an, oh dear God, and is just able to shrink to wasp size right before the woman behind her fires. With no Janet between her and the weapon now, the nurse leading her takes the bullet in the back of the head. The lady with the gun turns to some orderlies who are running to see what all the commotion is about and screams a command at them in an alien language, presumably Chitauri. And now we come to understand that something is really up. She smacks her neck and cries in pain, obviously from one of Janet's wasp stings. She yells in Chitauri, shoot the little witch, and we're graced with a series of panels featuring a naked, shrunken Janet Pym. Brian Hitch really does love to draw that, huh? In the interview they did for the collected edition, Miller mentions that they just decided it was too unbelievable for them to give Giant Man a suit that grows and shrinks with him. In response, Hitch says, quote, This was also supposed to be a reason why Waspy was always in the nude when she shrank down, her costume not being able to shrink. Then I realized I just didn't need an excuse to draw inch-high semi-oriental women naked. End quote. Yeah. 
Yeah, he said that. And, and they printed it. And I had to repeat it. Sorry. Anyway, a tastefully shadowed wasp gets away into one of the Triskelion's air ducts. Cut to Micronesia, 1800 hours local time. S.H.I.E.L.D. has descended on at least one of the 2,000 islands that make up the place. We get an especially galling panel with a fully kitted out Captain America leading a formation of camouflaged, armed to the teeth S.H.I.E.L.D. soldiers. He's wearing an army helmet and camo fatigues and has a huge machine gun in his hands. What's hilarious though is that he's still got his cowl on under the helmet and his shoulder patches are stars instead of chevron stripes. Why not just keep him in his Captain America suit? Thor doesn't have fatigues, and Iron Man literally glows in the dark. Turning the page, it really feels like we've missed a few panels because Fury is responding to Thor, whom we did not see arrive, and saying, quote, what do you mean there's nobody here? Thor answers, quote, exactly what I said, General. You asked me to teleport and give you reconnaissance, and I'm giving you the best information available. Joss Whedon, showrunner for Buffy, X-Men writer, and generally abusive creep, wrote in the foreword to the collected edition of The Ultimates that the dialogue in it was unfailingly crisp. So I guess he didn't actually read it. Thor continues by saying that the island appears to have been deserted for weeks. He tells Fury that the Psy Division was straight up wrong. Fury mutters that he trusts the Psy Division's intel over Thor's and refers to Thor as Goldilocks before ordering him to go take another look. Thor does not take kindly to this. He tells Fury, quote, I understand that this no-nonsense tone is all just part of a well-crafted persona to inspire the troops, but I'm not one of your little foot soldiers, Fury. I'm only here because I'm friendly with Tony, and I don't mind helping out. But I would appreciate a little courtesy next time you ask a favor. Again, why is he friends with Tony? He's supposed to be this radical leftist who's against U.S. imperialism, although, of course, he never uses that word nor the word capitalism in any of his leftist rants. Only six issues ago, he was telling Fury and Banner to, quote, go back to your paymasters and then tell them that he wasn't interested. People like Tony Stark are those paymasters. Jesus, it's such a shallow read of against the status quo that it's no wonder Miller thinks RFK Jr. fits the same bill. I wouldn't be surprised if we get a Photoshop on Twitter of RFK Jr. in the ultimate Thor chestplate holding the hammer. Fury turns to whoever that is next to him and says, is this guy for real? And I can definitely hear it in Sam Jackson's voice. Thor's best friend, Iron Man, swoops in and confirms via the sensors in his armor Thor's assertion that the island is deserted. Iron Man then says, quote, Could the psychics have had a migraine or something? Could that have knocked their coordinates off a little? As you can probably tell, S.H.I.E.L.D. and thus the Ultimates rely heavily on reports from this so-called Psy Division. And it's spelled P-S-I, not P-S-Y, so it's probably short for psionics rather than psychic. But that's neither here nor there because neither of those things are real. What is real, though, is apparently just as effective as these guys are, but is much scarier. 
the core mission of our company always was to make the West, especially America, the strongest in the world. And in Chicago, we have so much data, so much information, so many cameras, so many sensors providing input, all this real-time information. We've been talking thus far about intelligence and data gathering for fun and profit. But where is it leading us? What do we do with the data? This is where a little thing called predictive policing comes in. As the abysmal book Criminal Futures Predictive Policing and Everyday Police Work puts it, the general idea behind predictive policing is, quote, to anticipate crime and to be able to implement operational measures that deter offenders and prevent the anticipated crime from happening." End quote. Now, in a just world, in a world where police are not tools of class oppression, that actually almost sort of sounds okay. Who wouldn't want to be able to prevent things like domestic violence or out-and-out -out murder? That's the whole point of a civilized society, whatever form that may take. In fact, we know exactly how to do that. We know how to prevent the kinds of crimes that we'll see predictive policing is ostensibly meant to abate. If you don't want someone stealing bikes to pawn, if you don't want them selling drugs at risk to themselves and their community, give them food, housing, and health care. You want to talk predictions? In 2022, the average rent rose four times faster than the average income in the United States. No fucking wonder things are getting shoplifted. More things should get shoplifted. More CVS windows should get smashed. We shouldn't be afraid to say it. People's lives are more important than corporations' profits. And lest you try to argue that those profits are also good for workers at those corporations, I can assure you that that is simply untrue. In 2022, the Federal Reserve reported, quote, over the past 25 years on average, 44.6% of surveyed workers experienced negative real wage growth over the prior 12 months, end quote. This is covalent with the fact that billionaire wealth has tripled in the last three years. We used to have a term for thinking that corporate bottom lines were good for workers. It was called trickle-down economics. And today, we have people who should know better spouting the same tired rhetoric without realizing that they're running cover for Ronald fucking Reagan. We shouldn't be surprised, then, that in the effort to protect this system that impoverishes workers and enriches owners, the owners pay big bucks for anything that can help the police in their mission to keep the workers from establishing a better system or, really, having the power to even begin to think about doing so. As some of the stinkiest of you nerds might know, in the Lord of the Rings series, the corrupted wizard Saruman, played in the movies by the magnificent Christopher Lee, uses a small crystal orb to remotely view events and players all around the world of Middle-earth. The elvish word for this orb is Palantir, on regular Earth, Palantir is just as sinister. Started by an ultra-ghoul named Peter Thiel, Palantir is a company that was described in Bloomberg as a pioneer in predictive policing and, as of 2020, has been valued at 20 
billion. To bring this back to intelligence services, its initial funding came directly from the CIA. Now, those of you who have office jobs are probably intimately familiar with inane bullshit. You probably get emails from HR about pizza parties and pay cuts, or you get tepid missives from executives you've never heard of who make a salary you can't imagine for doing something all day you couldn't in good conscience call work. I'm sure you know exactly the type of language these emails use. We've got to actualize our synergistic approach to support future opportunities. Your performance as a disruptor has really stopped meeting our needs for innovation. Let me tell you, it's nothing compared to what Palantir has on their website. On the page for intelligence services, Palantir offers this. Palantir empowers intelligence agencies to securely derive actionable insights from sensitive data and achieve their most challenging operational objectives. Their elevator pitch for the defense industry is only slightly less abstract. Differentiated software derives exceptional outcomes. For nearly 20 years, Palantir solutions have been deployed all around the world and on the front lines, powering decision dominance for the U.S. and allies. But forget the international stage. Let's talk about Palantir and policing. An article from The Intercept titled How the LAPD and Palantir Use Data to Justify Racist Policing takes us on a journey of discovery alongside sociologist Sarah Brain, who studied the LAPD's use of and relationship with surveillance and data technology. It begins in a year all too relevant to this podcast, 2002. In 2002, former chief of police for the NYPD, Bill Bratton, became chief of police for the LAPD. Bratton is infamous for his support for the broken windows theory of policing. The idea behind that is thus. If an area of town is disorderly, say with lots of litter, rampant graffiti, or broken windows everywhere, then the residents of that area must live in fear and have most likely retreated to their homes and no longer engage as a community. This allows for the commission of more serious crimes like murder and drug dealing. I know what you're thinking. And you're right. It makes no sense. It's also super racist, because communities of people who can't afford to privately invest in or beautify their neighborhoods are also neighborhoods that are totally underserved by city governments, and invariably, these neighborhoods are primarily inhabited by people of color, who have no generational wealth because of this country's history of extreme racist exploitation. Broken windows is a prototypical form of predictive policing. Now imagine it on steroids. Using 9-11 as an excuse to further militarize the police, the Department of Homeland Security injected $35 billion into local and state police specifically for data collection infrastructure. It was originally supposed to be for stopping terrorism, but it instead just got used for regular policing, which is the opposite of stopping terrorism. When an area is over-policed, the inhabitants are arrested more often, regardless of whether they've committed a crime. This is the definition of over-policing. But those arrests then generate records that are inordinately long. This is data, 
data that the police use companies like Palantir for to determine where to send resources. Palantir has no interest in public safety. Palantir has no reason to be interested in public safety. Palantir cares about amassing more customers and winning more contracts. This is why Palantir doesn't just stop at arrest records. From Sadowski's book again, Palantir's social network analysis technique is now directed at tracking everyone. Quote, The software combs through disparate data sources, financial documents, airline reservations, cell phone records, social media postings, and searches for connections that human analysts might miss. It then presents the linkages in colorful, easy-to-interpret graphics that look like spiderwebs. End quote. It's easy to comprehend the militarization of your local police when you see them in riot gear or when you pass by the station and see a dozen armored tanks in the parking lot. What's more difficult to wrap one's head around is the hidden militarization of data collection. The police can use fake mobile cell towers called stingrays to just read all of our text messages. They can see our phone calls. They can read emails. They can tell whose phones our phones have been near and where. And not just one at a time. They're constantly collecting this from all of us and giving it to companies started by departments of war so that they can analyze it and determine which of us are most likely to go to protests or start unions or whatever we might do that could possibly threaten the power of capital. This is predictive policing at its core. We don't see it happening, and it can only be used against us. There is so much to digest and understand about the collection and use of data that it's hard to synthesize the few disparate pieces I've assembled here into a coherent thesis. It's not that the parts don't fit together. It's that they fit together in too many ways. We could take what we've talked about here in any number of directions and for near infinite length. Today's takeaway should be this. The United States government is fully controlled by corporations. These corporations must expand beyond the borders of the United States. That's the capitalism that becomes imperialism. To aid in this expansion, the government established, as all governments do, agencies that focused on collecting and utilizing information about other countries, and not just while we were at war with them. As the power of these agencies grew, so too did their scope. No longer were they tasked with protecting the country from outside threats alone. But now, the mission included spying on possible trouble from the inside. As the project of imperialism has continued to impoverish citizens at the heart of the empire, those internal threats have and will become more frequent and more desperate. To respond to this, the agencies that spy abroad contract the help of the corporations that run the government they're spying for and employ these companies to spy on us, the impoverished citizens. The data they take from us is used in two important ways. 
First, it's traded, bought and sold in a speculative market for whoever believes they can best profit from our habits, our hobbies, our very health. Second, the data being mined from us is used to determine how to direct resources most effectively in the pursuit of jailing us and oppressing us. Police know which among us are the tired, the poor, the most huddled of all masses, and it's to those areas they send the most patrols, arresting people for minor crimes or even crimes that have not happened, ensuring that no one there has a chance to make a better life. A third important aspect to consider, perhaps the most important of all, is not how or when the data is collected, but how and when it deliberately is not. Any analysis of policing data will show you that police gather intel and extract data from communities of color far more than they do white communities. An analysis of healthcare data, on the other hand, will show you the exact opposite. There is an alarming lack of data for underserved areas of cities nationwide. The corporations that extract data from us only gather data they believe will be profitable because data collection is a cost to them. It affects their bottom line. They would never use the healthcare data collected from poor people to learn better what those people need for their comfort and survival because those people can't pay for it. So why bother? If one were to make an argument that a company's profit is good for everyone, I would immediately point to this as a direct example of why that's not true. If someone's life is detrimental to profit, that person's life is forfeit. It's that simple. The only serving and protecting our public and private institutions are doing right now is firmly on the side of business owners and they're served and protected by hyper-militarized enforcers who watch our every move. And speaking of hyper-militarized enforcers, while Fury et al. are wondering how their intel could have been so wrong, the comic takes us back to the Triskelion. The Wasp has managed to elude a shipful of Chitauri imposters so far. A mysterious figure cloaked in shadow or obscured by extreme close-up is broadcasting a live message to her wherever she is. He's trying to psych her out by explaining how trapped she is and how inevitable her capture will be. She's made it to the radio room to try to contact the team in Micronesia, but cutting back to them we see that they can only hear static from her end. And then it turns out that the island they landed on was basically rigged to blow. We get two whole pages dedicated to just how damn big this explosion is. Much of the S.H.I.E.L.D. fleet is wiped out. The final two pages show us the Wasp trapped in the communications room, being closely monitored by her captors. It's more than a little fitting when it's revealed on the final page that she's waiting for inevitable death at the hands of none other than Herr Kleiser from the beginning of the issue a shape-shifting supremacist who's currently controlling the intelligence capabilities of the world's premier capitalist military to dictate who lives and who dies 
whose lives matter to his bottom line, and whose don't. Welcome back once again, faithful listeners. Listenerland wouldn't be the same without you. Now I'm sure you've all gotten your census surveys in the mail by now. Don't worry, you just fill out whatever you're most comfortable with. Here in our wonderful people's democracy, we use data to improve the standard of living for our working citizens, and only to oppress the owning class we're in a constant dialectical struggle against. Here in Listenerland, our hospitals are fully staffed, completely free of charge, and overwhelmingly supplied with revolutionary propaganda stickers for the little ones. We'd like to thank our patron, Shane Shack, for increasing their support from supervillain casualty to odd bystander. And thank you to our newest patron, Red Star Sound. And of course, massive revolutionary appreciation goes out to our destroyer of empire level supporter, David Barajas, as well as the bonus episodes and their names read at the end of each episode. Destroyer of empire level supporters get a coveted seat on the council giving them power to submit and vote on issues to be covered for full-length bonus episodes. You yourself can ensure that Collective Action Comics will be around for as long as possible by signing up for our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at CA Comics Pod. That's comics with an X. And as always, tune in next time for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics. Comics.